0: Um, chapters 1 through 12 are typically referred to as the book of signs. The reason for that is, as we'll see today, the first of Jesus' signs that he performed. But the, in those 12 chapters, he's He's performing signs uh, for people to see. And then in chapter 13, uh, transitions to what many scholars call the book of glory. Um, I think that's... Not the best name for it, because as we'll see today, Jesus glorifies himself even in uh, the first half of the book. But, but really, it's Jesus revealing his glories on an intimate level with his uh, disciples, beginning in chapter 13 and then going through really the, the rest of the book. Essentially, it's Jesus in the upper room um, during Passion Week. He's, he's eating the Passover with his disciples Uh, Just before he is to be killed. And he spends in John's gospel several chapters of of speaking and teaching to his disciples. Revealing uh, more of of himself, his relationship with his father. uh, His relationship, really their relationship to him and his father through all of that. Ultimately leading to uh, his death and resurrection. And then uh, chapter 21 is kind of an epilogue. uh, Really sums up the book and just to break that down a little further um, chapter one we've just completed as of last week and we saw the first 18 verses of chapter one were the prologue they they introduced what John calls the word and introduced us to the word being God the word was the creator the word became flesh and dwelt among us we beheld his glory first 18 verses of, of chapter one make up that prologue and then the rest of chapter 1 really are a, a personal ministry of Jesus. In one sense, his public ministry has started. It started with John the Baptist introducing him. You remember crying out, Behold the Lamb of God. And he, he did that a couple times, we've already seen in chapter 1. But really, Jesus' interactions in chapter 1 are on a personal level. He dealt with, he and John the Baptist dealt with uh, religious leaders that came to question him, questioned John the Baptist, who he was. Jesus, we saw last week, introducing himself on an individual, a personal level to several men who eventually became his disciples. And So chapter one, yes, an introduction to his public ministry, but it's but it's a personal one on one level here in chapter two really begins the the public ministry and the the real public sense where now now Jesus is going to begin to reveal himself to larger groups of people and so we come to chapter 2 let me go ahead and read our text for today the first 12 verses of john chapter 2 says this on the third day there was a wedding in cana in galilee and the mother of jesus was there john also was invited jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples when the wine ran out the mother of jesus said to him they have no wine And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. So this narrative records for us the miracle of Jesus turning the water into wine. A miracle that most, if not all of us, are at least familiar on some level with. What I want to do is really walk us through the performance of the miracle. Walk us through this text and just kind of see what happens. And then in the last part, I want us to just step back and and understand what what all those details mean, how they reveal the glories of Christ to us. Because on the surface, this might just seem like a really cool miracle that Jesus turned water into wine. But as you spend time looking at what Jesus is doing, what Jesus is saying, the way John records the miracle. There's so much more going on here. It's it's so much more than just a nice miracle. It is the revelation of Christ and His glories. This miracle occurs, verse 1 tells us, on the third day. And this simply means the third day after the previous recorded event, that interaction he had with Philip and Nathanael. And the way the the Jewish the Jews accounted the third day, this would be like us saying two days later. So this is the third day after. We would say two days later. Really, this is the completion of the first full week of Jesus' public ministry. So he attends this wedding in Cana of Galilee. And this is interesting to observe. Chapter 2 begins what, what some scholars have called the Cana cycle. And the reason for that is it begins in Cana here at the beginning of Chapter 2 and then chapter 4 ends with Jesus in Cana. And in those chapters, chapters 2 through 4, not only do they begin and end in Cana and that kind of unifies them, but they're also unified in what Jesus is seeking to accomplish. He's seeking to communicate certain things about himself. We're going to see that in coming weeks as we walk through these three chapters together. But chapter 2 begins this Cana cycle, this unit that are unified by this common theme of Jesus replacing something old with something new. And that's the theme that unifies these three chapters. We also know that Cana, the hometown of Nathaniel, the one of the disciples that has begun following him, we, we saw that last week. Nathanael was from Cana in Galilee as well. And you also remember that Cana was just a a stone's throw from Nazareth where Jesus grew up. So this is all in that region of Galilee, the the northern part of Israel around the Sea of Galilee, where all of this is taking place. And Jesus attends this wedding in Cana. We're also told in verse 1 that the mother of Jesus was there. This indicates that this was likely a wedding of a family, a friend, or even a family member. The fact that that Mary was there, the mother of Jesus, uh, likely indicates and and certainly would make sense that in that small region these families would have known each other. And perhaps it's even likely that that Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, had already died by this point. He's not mentioned here. He's not really mentioned in the Gospels at all after the the birth of of Jesus in that that account uh, in Luke 2 where he was 12 years old. After that, Joseph uh, drops off the scene, leading many to assume that He had died uh, by this point. And, and so it would stand that, that Mary is th- there kind of by herself. But then we find out in verse 2 that Jesus was also invited to the wedding with His disciples. I think further indication that this was the wedding of uh, probably a, a relative or certainly a, a close acquaintance. Jesus, His disciples, and His mother are all there at this wedding. Well at this wedding the guests encounter a problem. Verse three says when the wine ran out. Now this was a huge problem at a wedding in that day. You see, this wedding was the really the culmination, this wedding feast was the culmination of a year long betrothal period that would have taken place. That legally binding uh, betrothal. And during that year or so, the groom spent preparing for their life together. Oftentimes that included building a home for them. Sometimes built as part of kind of a family compound. But his goal during that year essentially was to prove that he could provide for his bride. He had to spend a year Impressing his soon-to-be father-in-law that he could actually provide for his daughter. He could provide a, a life for her. He could make a living to meet her needs and their family's needs. Also part of his responsibility was this feast. The groom was responsible for all of the provisions. The food, the wine, everything that went into this feast was the responsibility of the groom. And so for the wine to run out. For that groom, it was to demonstrate either he had lack of means necessary to provide enough wine for this feast or it revealed poor planning, neither of which were a positive thing for a groom trying to impress his soon-to-be father-in-law. This was an absolute disaster to run out of wine at a wedding feast. We're also told that When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to Jesus, they have no wine. Perhaps Mary was even in charge of some of the the, the food at the wedding. Or making sure that things ran smoothly. Perhaps she had some responsibility. Or perhaps we know even the the, the character of Mary from what we're told about her in Scripture. She no doubt would have been somebody that would have probably seen a need and and wanted to, to help with it. Even if she wasn't officially involved. Whatever the reason, she comes to Jesus with this need. incidentally, this is probably even perhaps another indication that Joseph was certainly not present at this wedding and probably already dead. And here Mary is going to Jesus, her oldest son, who is basically now the head of, of that household, looking to him for provision. And it's really uncertain whether she's asking him to perform a miracle there's no evidence that jesus had performed a miracle before this so it's it's not necessarily the case that that she was coming to him expecting him to do what he ultimately did rather she's coming to him as as the head of her household asking him to to jump in and help also interestingly enough that's this interaction with Jesus and Mary that has led many in the Roman Catholic Church to view Mary as a as an intercessor between us and Mary. We go to Mary to go to Jesus because certainly Jesus would listen to his mother. What's interesting when people use this verse to teach that doctrine, they obviously haven't read how Jesus responds to his mother. Because Jesus says to her in verse 4, woman, what does this have to do with me? And certainly this response to Jesus should tell us all that we need to know about whether Mary is a, a legitimate intercessor between us and Jesus. Jesus refers to her as woman. While this might at first seem disrespectful, I don't think that well, I know that it's not disrespectful because certainly Jesus, uh, the one in whom there was no sin, would not have responded in a disrespectful way to his mother. In fact, it's, it's difficult really to, in our English, to capture the, the sentiment of what Jesus was saying here. You know that Jesus used this, this same term when he was on the cross, when he spoke to John. He says, woman, behold your son. And so, it's, it's difficult to, to really capture that. Some have suggested it's similar to the expression, ma'am, or dear lady. I mean, the fact is, though, it wasn't mother. It wasn't mom. So, whatever Jesus was saying, on one hand, was not disrespectful, but on the other hand, was not intimate and what you would expect a son to say to his mother. It was not the warm exchange that probably she was used to. His answer literally, what does this have to do with me? It could be translated, what to me and to you? It's a a phrase that is actually used several times in the gospel accounts. Other than this, I believe it's always used and spoken by demons. You remember when Jesus, during his ministry, interacts with demons and In several cases, they told Jesus, what do you have to do with us? What do we have to do with you? And their point is that they didn't want him intruding on what they were trying to do in their possession of of men and women. They didn't want Jesus interfering with their work. Jesus, what do you have to do with us? We're going to look later on at, we're going to, unpack this a little bit more, what Jesus was communicating here. But for now, let me just leave it with this, that while Jesus was not being disrespectful, he certainly was putting some sort of distance between himself and Mary, his mother. In a little bit, we're going to look at exactly what he was communicating. But for now, I just want to continue walking through what happened and then come back and draw out some of these significant things in this exchange. The reason that He responds to her in this way, He tells her at the end of verse 4, My hour has not yet come. In John's Gospel, the reference to Jesus' hour is, is always referring to His coming death and resurrection. He will often refer to His coming hour. In one case, we're told that The religious leaders sought to put him to death, but they were unable to because his hour had not yet come. The fact that his hour had not come was a means of protection on his life. But what it also reveals to us, even from the very beginning of his public ministry, is that his purpose, his mission was to work toward his hour. His focus was on his hour and because he was focused on moving toward his coming hour. It led to this separation between himself and his mother. It's also interesting to note the way that Jesus spoke and, and even addressed in one particular instance in Luke 11. Verses 27 and 28. He's teaching and says, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you were nursed. Obviously, in praise to, to Mary. Blessed be Mary, essentially. And Jesus' response to her is perhaps just as startling as, as this account in, in chapter 2. He said to her, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And his point is that the extent to which we are blessed in Christ has nothing to do with our physical, familial relationship to him as was the case with his mother or his brothers and sisters. But rather, the intimacy that we enjoy with, with Jesus is due to our obedience to his word. Our following after and believing that He is who He said He was. See, many who heard Jesus teach were thinking on a, a human level. They were, they were hearing Jesus say things and they were understanding them on a, on a human level. But Jesus was consistently working at a deeper level. We saw that last week as He interacted with Andrew and Peter and Philip, and Nathanael. The things that He said to them were probing their hearts. They were dealing with things deeper than just what was going on on the surface. Jesus was pressing on toward the coming of His hour. That's what He was committed to accomplishing. Again, we'll see some of this drawn out a little bit later. Well, how does his mother respond? Don't know how surprised she was to hear his response. But she responds with really faith that Jesus was going to do the right thing and instructs the servants to do whatever he tells her to do or tells them to do. So whether she felt offended by his his comments toward her or what, She still instructed those tending the feast to follow his instructions, do what he tells you to do. Which we find out, ironically enough, after all of that communication with his mother, he does what she tells him, asks him to do. Jesus provides the solution to the problem of no wine. Passage goes on, verse 6. There were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And from reading the Old Testament, we are familiar with all of the the rituals that went on in in the worship through not only the tabernacle, then later the temple. All of the, not only the sacrifices that had to be made, but the, the washings that had to be performed. In order to go into the presence of God, in order for that priest to go in and offer sacrifices, he had to bathe, he had to wash his clothes. Because of mankind's uncleanness, because of their sin, in order for them to go into the presence of God, they had to be washed. It's even evident that Jewish leaders throughout history had even added on and expanded on on what God had commanded his people to do in relation to washing. And they had they had added even more restrictions, more requirements for people to wash because of their uncleanness. We don't have time to look at other places right now that that Jesus dealt with this issue. There are no doubt some coming to your mind where where Jesus deals with perceived uncleanness and his point is no, you're 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 misunderstanding what's unclean. They had added requirements seeking to wash their hands, to keep their hands clean, to keep their bodies clean, and they misunderstood the whole point of the ritual cleansings. Jesus says to these servants, Fill the jars with water. These huge jars each holding 20, 30 gallons. It says, fill them with water to the brim. These jars normally used for the purpose of purification that no doubt these wedding guests, when they arrived, would have washed at least their hands in. Jesus says, take those jars and fill them with water. He didn't tell them to go get the Drinking vessels, the drinking jars, the jars used for water to be drunk or the wine. But rather the vessels, the jars used for purification. He said to them. Verse eight, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. They draw out some of this water, they take it to the master of the feast, the. Uh, the master of ceremonies. If you've been to a wedding, you kind of understand who this guy is. He's he's the one making sure everything is, everybody's being entertained, everybody has what they need. They take the wine, this water that they had drawn up to him. When he tastes it, he doesn't know where it comes from, but he tastes that it has become wine. So in that process of they're filling these jars and Taking water from those jars to the master of the feast, it changes from water into wine. Perhaps you might be surprised that there's very little fanfare in this performance of the miracle. I mean, really, unless you knew what was going on, you never would have known this had been going on. Jesus performs this miracle in about as low-key a fashion as he, He possibly could have. You get a clue and I think a nice little parenthetical in verse 9 that the servants who had drawn the water knew. They knew where that water had come from. The master of the feast at that point didn't know where that water or as he tasted it, wine had come from. But those servants that had filled the water at Jesus request, had drawn it and taken it, they knew. They understood. Nobody else at the feast would have had any clue of what Jesus was doing. And how does the Master of the feast respond. He he goes to the bridegroom and as if the bridegroom's problems weren't enough because they ran out of wine. Now he's being scolded by the master of the feast. Master of the feast tells him, look, when you have a feast like this, you serve the best wine first. You allow people to be, to enjoy the best wine. And then when they've had, as it says, when they've drunk freely... They're no longer able to discern whether the wine is really good or or not so good. Then you you bring in the lesser wine and they don't know the difference and they'll still enjoy it because they won't know that it's the cheap wine. He says you save the best wine until last. And yet Jesus was even as low key as the the miracle was Jesus and John's record of it is given to us for a purpose you see jesus didn't really care that everyone saw him actually turn the water into wine but rather jesus was concerned about the revelation of of his own glory verse 11 tells us that it says this the first of his signs jesus did at cana in galilee and manifested His glory. What Jesus did here was so much more than a miracle. We often call this the first miracle of Jesus. And it was a miracle. To change water into wine is certainly a miracle. But the point of this story, the point of these verses, from Jesus' perspective, from John's perspective as he writes them, is so much more than the miracle. It's the sign. Jesus is revealing His glory through this sign. I think we mentioned this when we introduced the Gospel of John, but John records in chapter 20, the end of of his book, as he's summing it all up. He says this, Now Jesus did many other signs. We're going to see many signs that Jesus does. But John tells us that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So in other words, this sign is recorded so that we would believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing we would have life in his name. That's why We have this story. So the question we need to be asking is this. What was it that Jesus is revealing about himself here? In order that we would believe and have life in his name. What was Jesus revealing about himself? And I have several things that I want to draw out. First of all, Jesus revealed that His purposes were not always in line with everyone else's. Jesus' purposes were not always in line with everyone else's. We saw earlier that exchange between Jesus and His mother, where she wants Him to help and, and meet a need. Legitimately so. But Jesus in that exchange points out that He is no longer committed to meeting her needs and, and doing the things that she is asking him to do. Certainly he has been, in the absence of an earthly father, he has been the, the provider, the head of that household. But we see that he is no longer strictly committed to meeting the needs of his household, meeting the needs of his mother. Rather now, he is, his attention has shifted. He alludes to it in The mention of his hour not yet arriving. Jesus' parents had already seen a hint of this when he was 12 years old. And they lose him. And they go back and they find him in the temple. And his response is that he has to be about his father's business. His heavenly father's business. They saw a hint of it there. And now Mary really sees the fullness of what Jesus was was trying to do. It was not about simply taking care of his family. It was not about simply helping them be comfortable in their relationship with him as their physical son and and brother. Later in his ministry, he'll prove this point to Peter. When Peter is trying to protect Jesus, when Jesus is talking about the coming of his hour, his death, and Peter is, is telling him, no, 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 you, don't, you shouldn't die. Don't go to Jerusalem. You remember Jesus' response to him? It was even stronger than what he says to Mary. He tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. In other words, you're doing the work of Satan by opposing the work that I am trying to accomplish. My life is ultimately moving toward my death. And you're standing in the way. Jesus, during his, the last few years of His life, what we know as His public ministry, He is committed to doing His Father's will. We read a couple places where He teaches us this, reveals this to His disciples and those who hear Him. John 8, verse 28. He says, I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Also, John 5:17 he says, My father is working until now, and I am working. His point being that they're working together to accomplish a purpose. Even in the midst of his anguish in the garden, as he prepares for the hour of his death, and even requests of his father that that cup would pass, yet he still submits himself to the will of his father. Jesus revealed throughout His ministry and begins that, that revelation now that he is, he is about doing His Father's work. He is about doing the work that He's been called to. And that doesn't include making sure that a wedding feast has enough wine. But in His, his goodness and His wisdom, He uses that as a, a sort of parable, an illustration of what He is going to accomplish. By doing the thing that his mother asked and turning the water into wine. So Jesus revealed that his purposes are higher than everyone else expected. His purposes are to do the work of his father. What was that work? How did did that work flesh itself out? Well, here's a couple other ways that Jesus is revealing his glories in this sign. He revealed Himself to be the true means of purification. Jesus revealed that He was the true means of purification. Remember back in chapter 1 when we saw that John, as he's writing, refers to the true light that has come into the world, speaking of Christ, the Messiah. We talked about the sense in which Jesus is the true light. He's He's the true light as opposed to a false light. He is the ultimate light. He is the light to which all other lesser lights have been pointing. The same is true here. He is the true means of purification. He is the one to which all of these other means of purification have been pointing toward. And Jesus' point, by doing what he does, is to communicate that since he had come, there was no longer any need for water for purification. The purification that Jesus provides is not simply an outward purification as was the case with these jars where you just wash your hands and, or even perhaps wash your body and you're, you're ceremonially clean. Rather, Jesus in His purification comes and purifies us inwardly. We read a couple passages for us. If you want to jot them down and turn to them later and, and spend time meditating on Jesus' work as our purification. One example from his earthly ministry, also from Luke 11, verses 37 to 40, says, While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. That would have been a major problem. You would have been unclean if you walked in and did not wash first certainly the Pharisee would have been offended that somebody would walk into his home for a meal and and fail to wash. The Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? And then we see the writer of Hebrews really put that Reality on full display, chapter 9, verses 9 through 14. I'll read portions of that. According to this arrangement, he's referring to back, he's been talking about the tabernacle, the sacrifices, the washings. According to this arrangement, all of these ceremonies, gifts, and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. When does the time of reformation comes? It comes with the coming of Christ. And he goes on, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of deviled persons with the ashes of heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works To serve the living God. Jesus' point to these people, His point to the Pharisee, the writer of Hebrews' point is that those sacrifices, those cleansings, yeah, they take care of us ceremonially. We might actually get physically clean. Our hands might actually be clean. But the only one that can purify our conscience so that we now pursue good works rather than dead works is the true source, the true means of purification. See, Jesus, when he came and died on the cross and shed his blood, he did away with the old. That old was no longer useful. That was incomplete. In other words, there is no reason. He says, I'm here at the wedding. You don't need this water for purification. We can use this for drinking now. Because the true purifier is here. 1 John 1.7 But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. For that reason that you don't see us performing ceremonial washings as part of our services. The purification that we need has already been accomplished through Christ. Rather, we observe the sacrament of baptism, which signifies the cleansing work that has already been done. It's a picture of what Jesus has done to cleanse us from our sins. It's a once for all act. He has made us clean. He is the true means of purification. And though we might heartily rejoice in this reality, we ought to. I'm sure there are still times, I know there are still times, that we go back to those jars for purification. How many times do we find ourselves motivated to read our Bible just so that God doesn't think badly of us? or try to avoid God mistreating us so we want to stay in His good graces, so we want to keep reading our Bible. That's just washing it These jars of purification. Our standing with God is not dependent upon how many days of the week we read our Bible. Dependent on the work of Christ that has already been accomplished. How often do we pursue moral living simply as a means, again, to be in good standing with God? For God to think well of us. When we do that. We're, we're no different than the Pharisees that that did the washings, that viewed themselves as as better just because they were clean. So when we pursue moral living just as a means of obtaining or keeping God's favor, I'm just going back to that jar filled with water for purification, or perhaps we spend too much time policing others' purity. We spend all our time evaluating if someone else is clean. Rather than focusing on our own relationship before God and, and allowing Him to continue working in, through us. we were so worried about others. Again, just like the Pharisees that Jesus dealt with. They were so concerned about what everybody else was doing. that They missed Jesus in their midst. Perhaps you could think of many other ways that we, though we in our minds believe and rejoice and affirm that Jesus has come and has done away with all of those ceremonial washings, yet we find ourselves often functionally going back to try to wash ourselves. Recognize, see the sign Jesus did and and see that He is the true means of purification. Purification. That when we are purified by Him, we no longer have need to be washed again. Also, Jesus revealed Himself to be the true source of joy and celebration. You see, Jesus replaced the water that was used for purification with wine that was used for feasting and celebration. With Jesus present in their midst, not only was there no other or no need for purification to be done, but there was ultimate reason for celebration and joy. The Messiah was in their midst. And you remember last week the response of of those men when they realized, we have found the Messiah. And yet, I wonder how many people at this wedding. Missed that the Messiah was right in there. The true source of their joy and celebration was right there. And they missed it. Think about the bridegroom at this wedding. I don't think it's an accident that Jesus performed this sign at a wedding. Think about the bridegroom. He failed to provide sufficient means for the enjoyment of his guests. He let them down. But Jesus as the true bridegroom provides unlimited joy because he himself is the source of that joy. And he never runs out. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy at your right hand. There are pleasures forevermore. That is ours when we are in Christ In Christ, we are at God's right hand, enjoying the pleasures and enjoyment of His presence forevermore. This is why we not only celebrate and observe baptism, but we observe the Lord's table. Which anticipates the day that we will be in His presence. That we will also enjoy in a wedding feast and the wine isn't going to run out. The bridegroom is not going to fail us because He Himself is the source of our joy and enjoyment. This is a call for us to pursue Him now for our joy. Put off the lesser things that we pursue that will never ultimately bring us joy and And pursue the one that is the source of all joy. And hope in Him even now and perhaps the absence of joy in your life right now, for whatever reason, your circumstances, whatever thoughts you have, whatever lack of joy you might have today, look to Jesus And his promise isn't to remove necessarily all of the the bad things that are in our life. But he does promise to provide joy and rejoicing even in the midst of those as we await the day when all of those things will be done away with. So Jesus revealed that he wasn't on anybody else's schedule. He wasn't seeking to fulfill anybody else's purpose, just his and the Father's purpose. He revealed the glory of himself as the true means of purification. He revealed himself to be the true source of joy and celebration. Verse 11 tells us that he does this. Does this sign manifest his glory? And his disciples believed in him. The performance of this sign worked, the thing Jesus did worked. His disciples believed in him. Remember why John says he wrote this? was So that we might believe and have life in his name. The disciples believed in him because they saw the sign that he did. They saw his glories revealed. We're also left with an understanding that not everybody believed. Not everyone left that wedding believing in the Messiah. This will be certainly clear later in the book of John as as He continues to perform these signs and His performance of these signs ultimately motivates people to put Him to death. Which really just leads to the ultimate sign, the resurrection from the dead, that He will perform. He did perform. My plea to you today is, as we observe This sign, as we see the glories of Christ unfolded, believe in Him. Do not harden your heart against Him. Believe in Him. Trust in the work of purification that He has done. I don't care how dirty and sinful you think you are, and perhaps you really are, Jesus. His work of purification is even more than six jars of 20 and 30 gallons. It's unlimited. There is no dirt and sin that His blood cannot and does not wash away. Do not harden your hearts and reject the salvation and cleansing that He has provided. Trust in His work of purification for you and you will find joy and celebration in him. Let's pray. Our Father, we rejoice as we consider these truths. We rejoice that we have not been left to ourselves. Because we all at one point were dirty, wretched sinners. And apart from the saving work of Jesus, we would be lost. We would be hopeless. But yet you and your grace and your love for us sent Jesus for the purpose of dying and shedding his blood. And bearing in his body the wrath that is due to our sin should, should have fallen on us. But on the cross, Jesus took that wrath, shed His blood, and now cleanses us through His blood when we trust in that work. And so, Lord, I pray that certainly there are are people here that are not yet believing. They have seen the sign The Lord, send Your Spirit to open their hearts that they might believe in Jesus as their Savior, as their purifier, that they would find cleansing for their sin and hope and joy. I pray for those of us that do know this cleansing work. We have experienced the cleansing work of Jesus. I pray that You would Free us from the, the old habits of returning to the jars of purification in an attempt to earn favor with You or remain in good standing with You. Free us from that thinking and behavior. May we find in Jesus total purification. May we find in Jesus our ultimate joy, And cause for celebration. As we anticipate the day. We will be with him. We will see him as he is. We will continue to accomplish that work. Of purifying us. Even as he is pure. These things we pray in Jesus name. Amen.